listeners, and welcome back into another fabulous episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have a very special guest joining us today. Uh, today, we have the playwright Roderick Hugh Mason, uh, whose latest work, Hide and Hide, is being performed as part of the Breaking the Binary Theater Festival here in New York at Theater Row. Uh, that's being done at uh, on Wednesday, October 12th at 7 p.m. And a quick note, right out the gate, uh, at the time of this recording, there were only five tickets left. So quickly buy your tickets. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, we have Roger Q. Mason. Roger, oh my gosh, joining. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so good. The minute I got the email, um, about you and about your show. I was so excited reading about it and everything you've done. I knew right away. I I, I emailed the, the PR rep. I was like, I have to have them on our show. Oh. I, I was like, this, this person, yes, click save. Absolutely. <laughs> groundbreaking work, uh, challenging. Um, a lot of the issues that we're facing today. Right. Um, so your, your new show, Hide and Hide, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, let me start. Let me start by translating a little bit. So, uh, "Hide and Hide" is an American translation of a phrase in Tagalog, which is the national language of the Philippines. And the phrase is "tagu nang tagu," and "tagu nang tagu" means hiding and hiding. And it, it's this phrase meaning to say that someone is dodging immigration. Oh. My mother came to the United States in 1980 from the Philippines during um, the remittance movement, uh, the era when a lot of folks from different parts of Asia who had been affected by different wars and conflicts were moving between the 60s and the 80s to the US in order to find a better life for themselves and also work in industries like nursing, like a secretarial work, administrative work, where they could make a steady paycheck and remit money back to their families back home. My mother's goal in coming here was to send money back to her five brothers and sisters so that she could um, help them through schooling. And that's the reason why she moved to the US. When she got here, she encountered a world of, you know, sex, lies, and violence that was vastly different from the sort of rosy and romantic vision of the American dream that was presented to her on television in the in the Philippines. And, you know, I I am I have written this play Hide and Hide as a critique of the lie that we export to the world about what America is. You know, we're in a state right now. Um, politically where we're very divided about what America is and who should inherit it and what they're allowed to have on a federal and a state level. And I think at the corner, uh, at the cornerstone of this argument is the fact that we have been deceiving ourselves tremendously about who America is for. There's of course the rosy vision of it. And then there's the truth of in practicality and in truth, who actually gets to reap the benefits of this dream. And when you look at that dream through the eyes of an immigrant, you see it through the, the, the untainted wonderment 
and you get a chance to see how it, it devolves and how it erodes for them as they learn what the true America is. And so this play, Hide and Hide, is a two-hander about a um, Filipino undocumented immigrant who moves to LA in 1980, who encounters a um, white gay male hustler who has run away from Texas because he's killed somebody. And they sort of form this bond that involves a sham marriage in order for her to gain uh, green card status. And they do a couple of illegal things themselves too while they're here. And the play really charts the year that they're together and the, the ways in which both of them learn that the dream is a lie. And, and the piece ends by the sea. And I won't say what happens by the sea, but you know, I was born in Santa Monica. And so the piece ends by the Pacific Ocean, you know, the, the place that Joan Didion says where the land ends. You know, this idea of the ocean being the last piece of land of, of Western expansion. They could expand no further than that. And yet they did Alaska, Hawaii, et cetera. But um that's sort of the play in, in a nutshell for me. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's, it's clearly not a happy tale. Uh, you, you left all the grime in. you didn't, you're not, you're not putting a veil for the audience. You really are showing all of the, I guess all the scars, all the wounds that do exist right now. And you're forcing the audience to address it. But the funny thing is I'm doing it in a way that is still vaudevillian and comical because it's two people who are doubling and playing other characters throughout the piece. And some of them are actually quite funny, um, these, these other characters that they play. So there are definitely a lot of humorous moments and a lot of comical moments throughout the piece, not only through some of these side characters, but also... I, you know, my grandmother used to say, we laugh to keep from crying. And I think that laughter truly is the best medicine. And it, and it really is a way of critiquing a social structure, structure from an arresting and, and, and seemingly, um, uh, you know, unsuspecting place. You know, you're sitting there laughing and you're realizing, wait, I'm completely lampooning the ridiculousness of the life that I live. But goddamn, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and it forces it allows you to let your guard down. Absolutely. And all of a sudden you're just like, ha. Oh. Exactly. Oh. It's that moment. And yeah. that moment of recognition, that moment of seeing what's wrong with the world in which you live after you've laughed. You know, what is it that 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 um that uh oh god, now the name the, the play Laughing Wild. He says, laughing wild amidst tremendous woe, you know? And it's that moment, everyone's gonna kill me, um, but it's that moment where you recognize that the, the mixture of hilarity and tragedy is the, is the human existence. Mm -hmm. So and in that recognition, you have a choice to make. And part of that choice is, do you change? Do you change who you are? Do you change how you relate to yourself and to others? And that's what I think my plays do. They invite that opportunity for social change. Uh, truth is comedy. Nothing is funnier than the truth. Exactly, exactly. Nothing is funnier than the truth. You know, one of my great 
um, heroes in this business is, is the comedian and satirist Moms Mabley. And Moms Mabley was a, an African-American out lesbian woman. She worked in vaudeville and then transitioned onto the stage and into television and film. And she was noted in her work for just simply doing a lot of observational comedy where she would just point out the stupidity. I mean, she was writing during the, the segregation era and basically she was using her comedy to show how the everyday ridiculousness of living in Jim Crow. You know, like, what does it mean practically for me to have to stand in this line at the bus and you'd have to stand in that one? Those kinds of moments that point how ridiculous the system is actually erode it from within because it loses its hold and its authority on you. When you start questioning, is it, does it make sense? Yeah. Does, it, does it apply to me? We, it, it, uh, power is only absolute as long as we buy into it. And once we start looking at it in the face and questioning it, it starts losing its potency. And I think that's the great potential of satire is to is to disrupt and dismantle power structures through questioning them. You know, the most dangerous question um, that the human being can ask is why? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what was it like developing the show? You know, I wrote this show. This is a pandemic baby. It is. It, it's. 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 It, you know. And I. And and it took me a while to realize that that's what it was, and that's what I was doing. You know. Um. But it was a show that I started developing in 2021. I would say I, I can't quite remember. You know, all those years kind of blurred together. But I am. Um. I am a member of Page 73's Interstate 73 uh, Writers Group. And so I started developing it when we were meeting digitally. And then when this past year or whenever it was, we started coming together in person here in New York. And so I finished it here and I was very happy to have finished that, that piece, um, you know, in my time with, uh, with page 73. And uh, so it's, a yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was a work that, I don't know. It, it just sort of unfolded so quickly and, and all at once. And, and it wasn't very difficult for me to write because it was written in a style that I love. It, it, I call that style Homeric provocation, which is um, it's sort of an epic poem, the piece. Um, and so there we use the poetry and the piece to sort of do a lot of our social critique work. And then when we have scene work, we do a, a lot of character development uh, in those scenes. And it was just a lot of fun to, to envision that world and those people, you know, I, I enjoy that kind of writing very much. What is the message or the thought that you're hoping your audiences will take away from the show? The message. Oh, gee. And we, we haven't even started rehearsal yet. So message, <laughs> message. <laughs> I mean, I, I, call me after the show. I'll tell you what the message is. <laughs> Um, no, uh, the message of the show, I would say, is um, what is the truth to you? What do you actually need versus what you're told you're supposed to be? You know, I think it's a matter of um, finding, you know, an authentic self um, as opposed to the one that we're socialized to believe is right. And it's funny because one of the characters in the piece, you know, the white guy, Billy, who's sort of modeled after the John Voight character in Midnight Cowboys of the prostitute. He's beautiful with all that, all that sort of thing and gets what he wants and gets away with everything, literally gets away with murder because he's so pretty. And 
at a certain point, he says, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be bad. I don't want to get away with everything that I do and be this person, you know, that that's able to skate my way through life based on who I am and what I look like. And I guess what really emerged for me at a certain point in the piece was this idea of accountability. You know, you are who you are when nobody's looking. That's what my grandmother used to say. You are who you are when nobody's looking. And, um, you know, even looking today at people like the folks that stormed the Capitol on January 6th, no matter what rhetoric they, they may propagate about who they are and why they believe what they believe, they still have to get up in the morning and actually look at themselves. And that reckoning, that reckoning is or will be soon quite painful, I suspect, for some. For others, you know, they'll live that lie until they die. But for some people to really recognize what is the monstrous life that I'm living? Yeah. You know, and um, that that's sort of a, a sub theme of the piece that that emerged for me as I was going was this is a piece about the one white guy that is not going to get away with it. That's not going to take the lesser the lesser um, punishment because of his identity. And, and what does that mean for her? What does that mean for Costanza, the, the immigrant who's learning what America is through him? and through this experience. Ooh, I'm asking a lot of tough questions in this play. I'm realizing, my God, <laughs> I can't help myself. I, I can't help myself. I don't even try and do this to, to, to people. You know, it just comes out. It's just, the, it's just the natural inclination of what I'm drawn to ask through the theater. I, I, you, I could be given an assignment of, you know, write a, a 10 minute musical and all of a sudden it would be uh, an existential rant about queer loneliness and, 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 and intimacy shaming. I don't know. Like, that's just who I am. That's just, how, that's just how my mind works, but still it would be funny and have three torch songs in it and be a whole thing. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, that's just how I work. Now, is this the world premiere of this work or has it had any other readings or workings elsewhere? Because you mentioned so, 2021 so, you started. So I, I can't say world premiere because that would mean that we're having a full run of the show, you know, just so we get the legal terms of it right. But it, it certainly is a first showing of, of this piece. It definitely is a first showing. Um, I've not heard the piece out loud before. So the first time we, the first time we do, um, the rehearsal on on the eighth will be my first time hearing it in in actors' mouths. So I I don't know what it sounds like, you know, and I'm sure I'll learn a lot in those rehearsals. And that's what I love about um, about collaboration is it's a chance to learn about your work, yeah. you know, and to really see. You know, I um I had a teacher. Uh, in LA, his name was Leon Martel. And he talked about with us as students, the fact that the script is not the Bible and, and the playwright, despite their illusions or delusions of grandeur or beliefs in themselves, may or may not be God in the room. I, I, they're the vessel. 
And the script is but a blueprint for an event to be manifested in, in three dimensions. So I never look at the script as the be all end all. And I never look at myself as the be all end all. I, I, I come to the room with uh, an eagerness to learn from my collaborators and an open heart to what I can learn from their lived experience. Because mm. I think we have so much to glean from other people's perspectives and a play only serves to be enriched if it opens itself to the experiential education of engaging with the richness of the human experience. Oh, I love that. What a profound thing to say. And ask me to repeat it and I won't be able to. You know? I mean, that's just- Good thing we've got it on recording. <laughs> you know, good, good, good on you for recording this. Is this thing on? <laughs> because I, 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 these thoughts just come to me and they're the truth, you know, and um, it's how I believe that the best work is made. You know, Laura Eason came to visit my graduate school program at Northwestern and she described um, these skeletal drafts that she would bring in to Looking Glass. And then with the encouragement and inspiration of the ensemble, she'd fill them in. And I felt so seen by her because all of a sudden I had a partner in crime in terms of the way I develop work. At least at that time, I was bringing in skeletal drafts quite a bit and sort of seeing what I could learn from the room. Now I'm a, a bit of an overwriter now. I've, I've become, I've, I've, I've done the opposite in a way. Um, but I still learn how to chip away at a draft from, from being in the room. In fact, right before this, I was on the phone with the, our dramaturg. Um, I should say, I should plug our, our teammates here. Um, a Boylan is directing this reading and it's dramaturg by um, Gavin Trinidad. And I was on the phone with Gavin and um, I was saying, honey, I, I, don't, I know I can't make this one alone. I'm gonna need your help. And just to be able to sit down and acknowledge that you need help. I think that's an act of intelligence, uh, social intelligence. Um, we don't ask for help enough, not, not only in our business, but in, 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 in the world. We don't ask for help. We don't always know when and how to ask for help. And I think that's a healthy thing to learn. You know, at the end of the day, you boil down any theatrical process. It, it's, we're in the people business. You know, we are as strong as the people that we're with and the relationships we can sustain. Yeah. And that brings me to the actors. I want to just mention them really fast. Yeah. Um, that are actors for this. So the, the, the interesting thing about this festival, just so that your, your readers have a little context for it, is called Breaking the Binary um, Theater Festival. The um, founder and producer of this festival is George Struess. And they approached me and, and many other uh, trans and gender expansive uh, theater makers uh, around New York to envision an American theater that was for, by, and with trans and gender expansive folks as a way of saying, we are here and we are making work and we have a presence that cannot be uh, ignored or denied. So every pr um, presentation, including Hide and Hide, um, everyone on the team 
identifies as trans or gender expansive. Every person on the team, even the stage manager, production, everybody, everyone identifies. So it's sort of like a beautiful utopia for for us, you know, those of us who identify as TGNC, we, we, we have each other and we have a database of who we are now. But our actors for Hide and Hide are Han Van Shiver, and forgive me, Han, if I've mispronounced your last name, and also um, Ayla Sunchi Sullivan. And uh, so Han will be playing Billy and Ayla will be playing, um, will be playing. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those are our two actors for this for this particular reading. And I'm really excited. I mean, I, Ayla um, is a tremendous writer and performer. They were in um, New Visions Fellowship that I ran last year for Black trans writers. And, um, and I'm just getting to know Han and really excited because they come highly recommended and Abe Boylan has worked with them before. So I'm really looking forward to them as well. This whole festival just sounds amazing. Let me tell you, it's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff, baby. I mean, we are out, I mean, like, and there's like more than, I, I could count at least a hundred people on these. I mean, it's like, so, so if there's ever a question in any producer's mind about where are the trans playwrights, where are the trans actors, where are the trans stage managers, look on this website, honey, Breaking mm-hmm. the Binary Theater Festival. I mean, we are all there. And it's, I mean, what a what a beautiful mind and a and a, and a and a and a big heart George Struess has for creating not only a festival for us, but also now a database and an accountability system, hello, for our, uh, for our uh, decision-making population in the American theater. They now can't say, I don't know where the trans and gender expansive folks are. Yes. You can't say that no more. It's yes. gonna be a lie, honey. It's gonna yes. be a damn lie. <laughs> it always was, but now it's really gonna be a lie. Yes, theater I is mean, inclusive. It's for everyone. Theater, I mean, you just gotta remember, theatron, Right, the the ancient Greek word for theater means seeing place. It's the place where we see ourselves and our lives reflected back to us, the community. So we can't colonize or police the visibility and still call it theater. We would be lying on our name. We would be lying on our name as a seeing place if we did not do the work necessary to make sure. And this is an active investment because freedom is a road, not a destination. We are always moving, always fighting, always looking and improving and self-acknowledging and growing on the road to freedom, you know? And so what a beautiful time to be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I was growing up, I, 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 knew that, I, I knew that I couldn't stay in the boys' locker room because I felt so vastly different, not only physiologically, but also just sociologically from folks that identified as traditionally male or mask presenting. And so I retreated myself to hanging out with the girls, but that always seemed, you know, something was different for me. 
And I found myself in a bathroom. Yes, I did. I found myself in a bathroom in Chicago, a gender non-conforming bathroom. The first one I had ever seen in 2014. And by walking in that room and electing myself as eligible to identify by my true nature, everything turned around for me. Everything changed. That was a magical moment because suddenly I knew who I was. I knew where I stood in the world. Mm. I knew where I belonged and where I could go. And there's no greater gift than self-knowledge. You know, we're taught in the Judeo-Christian ethic that self-knowledge is a sin. The tree of what? Self-knowledge. That's where that pomegranate was, right? Not the apple, the pomegranate. Um, But I think self-knowledge is the greatest gift that we can give ourselves and each other. Yes. And if I dedicate my work off the page as a mentor and educator to anything, I dedicate that work and that self to helping others discover the joy of self-knowledge. Because I know what that has done for me. I know how that has changed and transformed and enriched my relationship to my work. There is a direct correlation between my current success and people's interest in me and what I do and my self-knowledge. When I knew myself and what goodies I had in my basket, (laughs) honey, people wouldn't stop buying my cookies. You know, (laughs) (laughs) okay. I've had to get a second oven, child, because I've got so many requests for cookies. I'm blessed. (laughs) And I'm thankful. I'm blessed and I'm thankful. But it all comes from knowing who I am and where I stand in the room. That's the key. And so if I'm to give anything to an emerging member of our community, no matter the discipline, you know, stage manager, designer, dresser, writer, director, whoever you might be, just know who you are and love who you are. Mm. And that's so much easier said than done. Mm-hmm. That's so much easier said than done. Here I am. I'm on, I'm on the far side of the 30s now. The far side of my 30s. I just won't now. believe that, but I'll let you say that. Oh, I've said it. I've said <laughs> it. Just now finding out who I am, or rather in the vernacular, who I is, (laughs) which is more important, you know, (laughs) which is more important, but that's the work. Yeah. I mean, that's the work. Well, winding up the first half of this, um, who do you hope have access to your work, to the show? Well, as you've said at the beginning, uh, we only got five tickets left. So uh, wh- whoever's going to get those, I hope you get access. 
<laughs> the highest bidder. <laughs> you know, I hope you get access. Honey. Um, but what I would say is, um, I really think, and 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 this is not an exaggeration, but I really think I've written a show for for America. Hmm. I really think I've written a show for us as a country. Um, those who are born here, those who are immigrants to this country, those who are first generation, those who may take their citizenship and its privileges for, for granted. I, I think I've written a show for all of us um, about the story of our, uh, of our continuum and our, and our collaboration in this democratic experiment. It was an experiment. We forget that it was never seen as finite and fixed. It was always seen by the framers as something that uh, would change and mold and adapt with the times. But I think certain factions within our current um, governmental structure have seen fit to make it seem fixed, immovable, and uh, <laughs> uh, fit to their their leanings, or rather the leanings of their of their lobbyists and 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 socio financial constituencies that make them think and say the things that they do. I'm done. That was the only political statement I'm going to make today. Because the question I have is, do you really think any of this shit? Or is that your paid statement for this week because uh, so-and-so paid for it? Mm-hmm. Paid for this campaign. You know, you want to know where people are politics are. Look at their pocketbook. Yes. Look at the money train, honey. Please listen carefully. shift now to uh, to you to you okay. and, and your experience in the theater um and i want to start by asking what shows in the past have inspired you or that mm. you love and since you're a playwright i want to also ask um are there any playwrights or composers as well in that category first of all i will say the work of joe melziner the great scenographer of the um the 40s through the 60s is inspiring to me. Um, Melzina worked with Arthur Miller, with um, with uh, Tennessee Williams, and I think, in my opinion, and uh, you know, a theater historian might be able to point us more directly to this, but had a had a tremendous impact, I feel, on the aesthetic that defined American drama because. The, all those scenes behind that veneer with the the other woman in uh you know um in uh death of a salesman all of the expressionistic work of the the blue piano and new orleans itself during the rape sequence in uh streetcar these moments are the collaboration between a director a writer and a scenographer envisioning of stage play world that creates a psychosexual and sociologically transformative event that's commenting on American life mm -hmm. in a way that hopes to shake us into changing it in some way. 
Jill Milzine, brilliant. Um, that wasn't a playwright, but that's fine. Um, I had the great pleasure when I was coming up and doing various internships, I was spending a year with um, a production of um, Waiting for Godot at A Noise Within, which is a classical repertory theater in Los Angeles. And the director was Andrew Traster. And it allowed me to develop an intimate knowledge of that play and, and an understanding of minimalism and, 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 and also uh, social critique at its finest hmm. through uh, Sam Beckett's work. Susan Laurie Parks, mm-hmm. the music, the music of language, the way it dances through a body, repeats and revises itself and revives and transforms, you know. That's, she's another inspiration to me. Um, the great poet, if you called him a playwright, he'd shoot you in his own house. <laughs> Good. Murray Mednick, who um, was, at, you know, was a, a founding member of the Theater Genesis here in New York and in the 50s, and also um, founded Padua Playwrights, where David Henry Wang, um, Maria Fornes, um, Sam Shepard, the list goes on. Leon Martel was a part of that group. Guy Zimmerman, another member. I mean, to, I had the pleasure of working for Murray as a, uh, a producing manager for his theater company, Padua Playwrights, for about a year. And just to learn from Murray about what he called thematic rhyming. Thematic rhyming is this notion of how do you use language to sort of explore a theme? I mean, that, that poet, poeticism uh, inspired the hell out of me. Of course, this list evolves daily. Um, but you asked me what shows. I want to think about current shows or shows that shows that I've seen recently. Uh, Donye Love had a play at MCC called Soft. Oh my gosh, that was so good. That, um, that articulated this notion, and I think it's a very it's it's a contemporary queer notion of audience engagement, but also radical care for audience. And of course, many different shows have done it, but this is the one that I saw where I really understood how it, how it could be used and still be incorporated into the dramatic action of the piece, soft. That moment at the end where all the black and brown audience members are invited to stand up and receive their flowers. Yes. Um, but it was sort of a, a dramaturgical extension of the anointing of the lead. That, that the lead is freed. And so now it's this extension of how do we all heal? I, I really loved that. And then of course, um, one, one, one of, um, you know, as a poet, you know, and, and, a, and a language artist as well as theater artist, Alicia Harris, I saw um, on Sugarland mm-hmm. uh, when I was here last and, and really, you know, just love that there's that one, that the, the, the sister that is so extravagant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just the different, the, that, that's how you use humor in a, in, in, a, yes. in a piece that's looking at, at, at the, the, the more sort of um, uh, difficult aspects of the human condition. That's, that's how you do it. You know, I really loved, I really loved that a lot. But those are my, those are mine for today. Of course, if you ask me tomorrow, <laughs> you know, I might have a different answer. So I, I say that so that no one that hasn't been mentioned 
uh, uh, gets upset. But I should say, I should say too, A. Boylan has a play called Virgo. Mm-hmm. A. Boylan is a director and an actor, and they have a play called Virgo that was sort of a formative text for me and gave me a lot of permission aesthetically as a queer uh, writer to do a lot of things on the page with performance art and duration that I, that I didn't think we had permission to do. But uh, A said, fuck it. And in fact, has made, has made an aesthetic out of it. And I think it's marvelous. Amazing. What is your favorite part about working in the theater? The people. You know, I, I love, I love rehearsal. I love tech. I think designers are the best dramaturgs because they take the theory and make it practical. And they, their job is to do moment by moment storytelling. And when something is missing, they're the first ones to tell you. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I, I, I love, that's what makes theater theater is the people. Yeah. That personal connection. And it's that reach out from the stage to the audience. That mm-hmm. in, yeah. in, in, ways that, in ways that are unique to us. Yes. And, 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 and more writers are starting to recognize that that's, that's the beauty of our art, the reaching out mm-hmm. to the audience. Don't worry about breaking that fourth wall. It's okay. There is no, there is no fourth wall. Exactly. There is is no fourth wall. Even when there is one, you know, it's, I mean, like, that's the beauty of a piece like Fairview. It's like, okay, here's a fourth wall. Now let me just actually break the wall, fuck up the, the, all the dishes in the room. You know, it's a disruption of that. I love that, you know, that idea. And I've been seeing in more theater, if the actors aren't going to break the fourth wall, the audience is, because we're going to start to vocalize and react to what's happening. And we'll break the fourth wall to let you know, like, hey, we're here. I love love that we've created a theatrical culture that's like Black church. Yes. Yes. I mean, I was always that. I was always the noisy bitch in the room you know, and now I'm not the only one. So I'm grateful. Thank you, audience. (laughs) I love you. So winding things down, I want to ask my favorite question, which is what is your favorite theater memory? I have many, and I'm actually going to tell you a couple of them. Okay. And another winter in a summer town, Christine Ebersole, the Broadway production of Great Gardens. That's one memory. Watching the, the, the lioness mourning scene in Lion King with my grandmother at the Pantages in LA a couple of years before she died mm. and seeing even her weeping from that. Never forget that. And I wanna talk about a memory of my, of my own, um, my own work. I would say that first, Night in Lavender Men recently, my production of Lavender Men in Los Angeles. When a young woman, we were doing the binging sequence in that play, that piece is about intimacy and, and, and food addiction and history, all kinds of crazy stuff. And there's, a, I, I binge a pie on stage as a performance piece. And I just remember seeing a young woman choking up, hyperventilating. She walked out of the room and I was like, okay, yes. You doing it, girl. You doing it, girl. You got people walking out. And then she came back. She composed herself and she came back. And she introduced herself later. She was like, I was just so touched by this. I, I could not leave, but I couldn't breathe. And I had to see where it went from there. And so I 
I got myself together. I went to the restroom and I came back. We do it for them. We don't do it for us. We do it for them. Those are three memories today. I love that. Are there any other productions or projects that you have coming on the pipeline that we can, that we could plug? Yes, I do. I have a lot of things going on. Um, <laughs> I, I can say that my play Lavender Men has been adapted for film. So we have shot, the, the, we have shot principal photography and we are in post-production. So look out next year for, um, the world premiere of the film version of Lavender Men. Um, you can find all of that stuff. I'm, I'm sure we'll be putting a lot of it on social next year. But in the meantime, while you wait for Lavender Men, in addition to Hide and Hide, which is going to be October 12th at 7 p.m. And we got five seats for five lucky patrons left. Uh, in addition to that, on November 4th, at, uh, I think it's at 3 p.m. I'm giving another reading and I'll be acting in this one. And this piece is called The Pink, an intimacy ritual. And it's literally a real time slice of life hookup date between two queer bodies uh, over an evening. And I liken it to the black and brown queer um, Frankie and Johnny at the Claire de Lune. And uh, so that will be November 4 at 3 p.m. That one is at 59 East 59th. Yeah. And there will be press material about that coming out, but it's being presented by primary stages at 59 East 59th. So that's going coming up in November. And then, uh, you know, Lavender Men and a couple of commissions, like um, I'm writing a piece about Bayard Rustin for Center Theater Group that we'll do a reading of next year. But that that's that's a little bit down the road. So that's what's going on with me for right now. Well, if our listeners want more information uh, about your show, Hide and Hide, uh, or they want more information about you, or they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do that? You can find me on Instagram at Roger Q, Q, the letter Q, Roger Q dot Mason. You can find me on um, Facebook at Roger Q. Mason, just my name. And you can find me sometimes on Twitter at Roger Q. Mason, all one word. And I am so excited for your listeners to engage with me and my stuff. And thank you very much for having me on today. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time with, uh, with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. My guest today has been Roger Q. Mason, who is the playwright of Hide and Hide, which is part of the Breaking the Binary Theater Festival at Theater Row, playing Wednesday, October 12th at 7 p.m. Tickets can be reserved at bfany.org slash theater dash row. And there's only five left as of recording time right now. And you can find Roger um, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at various Roger Q. Mason uh, handles and we're going to post all this information on the episode description as well as on our social media so until next time i'm andrew cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones unwrap your candies and keep your masks on and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper thank you Thank
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.